Deep and meaningful conversations to connect, find calm, feel empowered and uncover clarity. Welcome to the Death Dying Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Hi, Sally Kent. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Julie. Awesome. So Sally is a celebrant and has been involved in the death industry for about 26 years. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in death and dying before we sort of talk about the celebrancy and all that other stuff. Okay, well, it certainly wasn't something that I did purposely, put it that way. So um, I had a very um, uh, extensive corporate career, mainly in communications agencies and advertising. And I had been in a, a local community in a small rural town. Uh, northeast Victoria, and I was doing a lot of public speaking. So I basically was asked if I had thought about becoming a celebrant, and I actually didn't even know what that word meant. It, it wasn't something that was common. It, that was about 33 years ago. And so I did a bit of investigation and thought, oh, gee, that might be something that does interest me. But I was only thinking in terms of weddings. Yes. You know, the brighter side of life. <laughs> Uh, Yes. And so I was a CEO of a business. I was on two boards. I was mother of three. I was in Rotary. I was, you name it, I did it. And I thought, why not be a celebrant? And so I put an application in. It took seven years for me to come a celebrant because at those stages, they were only allowing a certain number per region. And it did take a long time. And in the finish, I was nearly over it thinking, oh, it's not meant to be. And then all of a sudden, I received a letter out of the blue saying, you're a celebrant. God, that's longer than doing a law degree. I know. <laughs> and, and it was just like, you know, it, it maybe it was not meant to be. You know, it's just one of those things. Is the universe telling me something? But look, I uh, got the letter. The first thing I did, because education had been a big part of my life, having taught music for 25 years in another part of my life, <laughs> I rang the Attorney General and said, oh, when's the training? And the girl on the end of the phone laughed. And I thought, gee, that's a strange response. And she said, there isn't any. She said, you'll work it out. And I'm like, okay. So I did. Look, it was the legal side of things that worried me a little bit, but um, I'm not afraid of study. I studied most of my life in something or other. And so I put my head down, got hold of the Marriage Act and the regulations and studied them and off I went. And that actually contributed to me opening up the Celebrants Training College in 2002 because there was really basically very little training. But a year after I became a celebrant, uh, one of my closest friends, her husband had a stroke. And it was very sad. He was 53. They did tell him that he would have repeated strokes and he would pass away at some stage or other, not far away. And he grabbed me and said, you have to be the celebrant at my funeral. And I was shocked Mm. and said, Peter, I couldn't possibly do that. I mean, I cry. My family love this. I cry at every ad on the telly, (laughs) let alone alone a sad story. So I said to him, I can't do that. It's impossible for me to do that. Basically, what I said was, I'm happy to describe your life. I would be very honoured to spend some time in your hospice with you and describe your life. And I did. And it was the most beautiful experience for me. I learned so much about him. I wrote it all down, edited it, and I thought, what a beautiful gift to Mm. give his wife yeah, and the family. And then lo and behold, a few months later, he did die. His wife rings me and says, don't forget you promised to be the celebrant. (laughs) Did you have to go and learn all about the funeral law side of things then or did you already know it? I had no idea, Julie, no idea. 
So anyway, off I went. I did say I didn't really want to do it because I felt like I would not do the job that a professional would do because I was too emotionally attached. Mm. And the family repeatedly said, Sally, we can't trust it with anyone else. And I then started to realise the importance of trust around death and dying. Yep. And so I reluctantly said yes, but I must say I had a backstop. I actually had another celebrant with me on the day just in case. I'm the queen of contingencies, Julie. Yeah. And so I said to them, look, I've got it all written. I'm pretty certain I know how this all goes, but I'm going to have someone here with me just in case I fall to pieces and I do not want to wreck Peter's funeral. Yeah. And look, on that day, two things happened. The first thing was I realised what my future was going to be. And it was not going to be so much in weddings yeah. because I felt that it was just the most enormous privilege to have been able to work alongside and hold that space for them mm. and then stand up and conduct that ceremony. And I know Peter would have been absolutely thrilled with his ceremony. But the other thing that happened also helped form my path going forward. And that was I had a shocking experience with the funeral company and it was just appalling. I just don't think the people that were on that funeral that day cared. So what happened? Can you tell us about that? Like what actually happened? They were very aloof. Like they just mm. weren't present and, and then they were present at inappropriate times. They didn't help me. I asked for help because I said my concern is not about speaking or being able to create a space, my concern is around protocol. Yeah. So I don't know anything about funeral protocol. 99% of funerals at that day were, were done in, in churches. And so I was more worried about doing the wrong thing in the protocol area rather than anything else. So they were absolutely less than helpful. Mm. And they were not caring of the family at all. There were so many things that went wrong in the planning stage that I had to become the advocate for them. And then the very worst thing that happened was on the day of the funeral, the funeral director stood one metre behind me. I didn't know because I didn't turn my back. He stood there and basically pulled faces the whole ceremony. Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. How disrespectful. Oh, The video that was taken, I watched it because I wanted to see how I managed it as far as a professional development yeah, activity. Sure. But Cor Coral said to me, the wife, I can never, ever watch that video again because that horrid man stood behind you and pulled faces like, you know, people were speaking and he was going, oh, you know, like this. And I'm like, why would anyone do that? Like, and that, I mean, that was his me. business, Sally. Or that, that was his well, business. He was, well, he was the funeral director for that very large oh business. Oh, God. And so wow. the client, on my suggestion, did put a complaint in afterwards, mm. but it's something that she shouldn't have had to deal no, with No, for sure. But, but the thing that really got me, Julie, was it actually helped my path because mm. what I said was, yes, I'm going to be working in this space going forward, but secondly, I'm going to make sure that no family ever has that experience again. Great. So what a gift you were given there to actually be able to clearly see the impact you could have and, and the path that you wanted to take. And, you know, you're right. I mean, I'm thinking of now about age-wise and, I mean, everybody had funerals in churches in the old days, <laughs> even if they haven't been in a church for the last 50 years, you know. What happens when you receive a diagnosis that makes you feel lost, isolated and confused about the way forward in life? Let our doulas provide clarity, help you find information and connection and feel empowered in your choices. 
doulaconnections.com.au. Tell me how, if you've got the data, how many people would have their funeral service in a in a church and how many would have it in outside of a religious place? Well, we, we do know the data on that. And what, what I'm about to say is that in a rural setting, country mm-hmm. setting, uh, there is still more that have it in a church. Yep. And we're not quite sure what that's about because it's not really relative to whether someone's religious or not. Yeah. It seems to be that the church is the gathering place. Sure. So we know that country and rural settings, it still seems to be probably around about 60 to 70% that would have a church funeral. But in a um, metropolitan area and certainly filtering into uh, more rural areas, we're doing over 70% of the funerals are done outside of churches. Yep. And do some people ha- use a church setting but have a celebrant within that? No, it's absolutely. In most situations, uh, the churches does depend on which church we're talking about. Sure. Yeah. Many churches are happy to either co-facilitate mm-hmm. or to actually hand it over to someone like myself. Okay, cool. And, and are there many people now, Sally, that you you would say you might be able to support them so they can actually run their own service so you could, you're more better in the background rather than the person at the front look julie i'm going to say to you that 99 percent of the funerals that i am involved in work that way they are family-led mm. so i'll just give you an example i was working with a family yesterday that very sadly lost their 16 year old in a car accident now my role i come in i'm their voice i'm their arranger i'm going to be their celebrant and I sit with them and we work through over, I, I was there for four hours. We just work through what is important to the family. Yeah. And my mantra is as long as it's safe and legal, then everything else yep. we, can, we can do. So I listen to them and then we wrote down all of the things that were important to them and then we're going to make that happen. Mm. And then we engage a funeral company that's happy to come in and basically take my lead, knowing that I'm the voice of the family. So really, it's very much of an advocacy role, isn't it? It is. I look on my business card. That's what it is. It's family death care advocate. Wow, that's beautiful. Because mm. what I, what I want, and I've seen unfortunately over the last, I'm going to say the last fifteen years, is that many of the bigger funeral companies have a model, and that model is the best for their bottom line. Right. But it's not, all, it's not always best for the families. So what I want to do, and there's a reason why I wrote my book, is that I want families to understand their rights, their choices and the law. And then they can choose what they want to do and then we find the suppliers that will help us make that happen. Okay. So how many celebrants are there in Australia? Any, any idea? Funeral celebrants? Yeah. Look, it's hard to know because they don't have to be registered anywhere. They don't have to do any training, which is terrible, in my opinion. And I know some people might think that's a conflict of interest because I run the Celebrants Training College. But I I believe that you can do far more damage as a funeral celebrant than you can ever do as a wedding celebrant. Mm. So for me, I would love it if we could introduce a system where they had to be trained. But I'm going to guess and say to you there's probably around 
two to 3,000 people that would do funerals. Some people might only do one or two a year and then there's others like myself that do more. I certainly don't do anywhere near the number that other people would, but my role is much bigger than just being yeah. the funeral celebrant. Yeah. So I will, I will do one a week and then I know that I'm available to that family for that week and I'm not trying to distribute my time over four funerals. Yeah, because I imagine there's a lot of hours you know, to pull, it's not like you just turn up on the day. There's a lot of preparation work and I imagine there's a lot of what you do after as well, checking in and... There is. If I look at yesterday, I've probably spoken to that family on the phone possibly five or six times before I met with them yesterday as a, as a whole immediate family and I was with them for four hours yesterday. I had yep. a two and a half hour drive home. Today, I've spent all morning getting hold of the funeral director, uh, sorting out the coroner so that the body could be released, looking at venues, look at viewing spaces, helping the family go to the cemetery to pick their plot, and that's just been this morning. So wow. I'm going to say to you uh, that by the time the end of next week comes, I probably would have spent the best part of 30 hours with this family. You know, I, I mean, just listening to you, it's sounding so much like a, a role that, you're an end-of-life doula, you're a counsellor, you're nearly like a funeral director plus a celebrant. I know you're not a funeral director. I don't think you are, are you? But there's crossover in there, isn't there? Wow. So it's a huge role. So there's training that's required to do weddings but not funerals. The reason for that, Julie, is that a wedding ceremony is a legal ceremony. Yep. A funeral ceremony is not. Mm. Yeah. And that's the only reason the Attorney General's Department doesn't want to have a bar of funerals because it's not anything in their jurisdiction at all. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, I suppose, you know, there'd be a lot of people out there that might benefit from having some celebrancy trade, maybe some funeral directors as well by the sounds of some of the stories, but it sounds like such an important thing. I've had many funeral companies send their staff to me. Yeah. Even I remember a, a funeral company from Cairns sent two of their staff members down to me in Melbourne to be trained. Mm. Now, I asked the owner of that company, for what purpose? Do you want these, they're both men, do you want these men to be celebrants? And he said, not necessarily. We really want to know what celebrants do and how they do it. And I thought, yay to that company. Mm, for sure. A diagnosis or a shift in life circumstances can be stressful and upsetting for you and your family. We can help. Let our experienced team support and guide you to feel safe, secure and at peace with your decisions. Visit dualconnections.com.au. So let, let's turn now to your books because I know you've written some books. So tell me about your first book and why you wrote it. Okay, so the first book was The Heart and Soul of Celebrancy and the mm -hmm. reason why I wrote this was a publisher contacted me and knew a little bit about my background in training and said, would I be interested? And I said, look, I would, but I, I probably wasn't in a, a space where I had a lot of time. But they encouraged me to attend this writing workshop for published authors, which I wasn't at that stage. But I did. And that weekend absolutely helped me set up my entire first book. And I did actually have a layout for the conversations about death and the heart and soul of celebrants at the same time. But the publisher said, please put the death book away. We mm. won't be publishing a book about death. Right. So I honed in on that. Now, the reason why this book, The Heart and Soul, was that there was not a single textbook for any celebrant in, in the world. Wow. Oh. So I wrote that. But the biggest chapter 
is about funerals. Mm. <laughs> uh, and that is sold into so many countries. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how many we've sold, but it's probably about 12,000 copies of that book. And that's today is still a book that many training colleges around the world use as a textbook. So uh, when did you release that? When was that published? That was about 2009. Right. My okay. was first published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, as you know, my passion's in funerals and death and dying. So I was very eager to get conversations about death written, which was much more for the general public. Mm. That took five years of my life. Yeah. There was a lot of research. There was a lot of self-reflection. There was, a, you know, an awful lot of time spent finding the right editor, which yeah. I ended up doing in New, in New Zealand. She was a, a fantastic editor with a background in uh, palliative care. Right. So she was the right editor, but it took me a while to find her. And there was a lot of interviews, you know, the amount of doctors that I interviewed, the amount of palliative care workers, Um, funeral homes, doula, people like Helen Callanan and those sort of people. So that did take me five years. It's a lot of work, but I'm very proud of it. Wow. And when did that get published? That was about five years ago now. So um, that's the second edition is currently with the editors. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. Now, you're also on some boards and committees and things, aren't you? So tell us a little bit about some of those that are close to your heart. Okay. So the probably the first board of any note that I was asked to be in, uh, or invited to be on was the Funeral Industry Ministerial Advisory Council for the state government in Victoria. So they asked me to be on a board after the review of the funeral industry where I think that review came up with like 123 recommendations. They asked a group of people, about 12 of us, to be on that board and I was a family representative on that board, so the family advocate, right. which was great. But it was a board that was very difficult because for five years it was a battle getting anything um, mm. actually com- completed. So, you know, I'll just give an example. We wanted to do a code of ethics for the funeral industry. Well, five years later we still hadn't finished it. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't surprise me. Code of ethics, yes. Getting a lot of people to agree on something. (laughs) For for me, who is a person who likes to get things done, I was pulling my hair out. And look, the biggest problem we had was we had three CEOs of funeral companies, the the two biggest in Australia and a third one, an independent one. And it was a battle, let me tell you. Mm. Every single thing we tried to get across the line, they, they really blocked so that was the first board I was on. And then with Pia Interlandi and Libby Maloney, we started up the Natural Death Advocacy Network. And that was really a network where, the, where we were trying just to get who are the players in the death and dying space around Australia and how do we connect them so people can find them. Yes. And so I was on that executive, I think, for five years as well. And then two years ago, I was invited onto the board of the Groundswell Project which is an an amazing organisation that, for example, one of the things that uh, they're, well, two things that they're they're primarily um, interested in is death literacy, improving that around the country, but also dying to no day. Mm. So I'm still on the board for the Groundswell Project. That's the only one at the moment that I'm on in the death and dying space. Okay, cool. So like my perception is that people are starting to, 
I don't know, maybe talk about it a little bit more, want to have a bit more say in funerals and death, etc. Well, what do you think? Why is it changing or is it just, am I just imagining that because that's how I'm thinking? Oh, no, I don't think you're imagining it at all. I think that people are starting to think more carefully and also, unfortunately, there's people that have had some really bad experiences. And just to give you an example of that, when the conversations about death came out, I was speaking at many uh, local libraries. And one of the libraries that had invited me to speak about the book, they had 75 people. Um, so it was booked out. They couldn't fit mm. any more in. And I'm going to say to you, I couldn't do a book launch that night. I ran a therapy session. Wow. Because I reckon out of the 75 there, three quarters of them were there because of a bad experience that had occurred around a death or a funeral. And I was, I was in shock, Julie, because I was unaware that it was so broadly spread mm. that people were dissatisfied. You know, examples were we wanted to get mum home to die and the hospice wouldn't let us. Mm. God. You know, or the treatment of the person at the end of life. One lady had a refusal of treatment at end of life, all signed. They went against that, you know, and so the poor parents of that person were just beside themselves that they couldn't get the paperwork across the line, even though it was signed and it should have been listened to. And then the number of people that were very upset about how funerals did not go the way they wanted to. They felt they were just ticking boxes randomly because there was no other choices. And many of them were very upset that they did not get value for money. And they, many of them were in debt mm. because of the funeral costs. But I think there's a debt and having a debt against something that they value. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a debt against something that they regret because it wasn't what they wanted. And that's what I kept hearing. And so that is very sad that people are left with that. It's nearly like, dare I say, traumatising. The thing about trauma is it doesn't go away. It just, it's, it's, a, it's there forever. If you think about those examples I've just used, so there's trauma around not being able to get someone home because they knew mum wanted to die at home. So that's traumatic. Mm. Mm. And I understand that it's not everyone's desire to die at home or the family don't want the person to die. I get that at home. Mm. I, I get that. But in these situations, they were people that had discussed this before, mm. couldn't get it done. And then you've got trauma around you know, having a farewell that was not the farewell that they wanted. And as much as they tried, they still couldn't get a company to listen and follow through on what their needs were. And I suppose, you know, the thing around around uh, death and dying is that it's, it's uh, you're already overwhelmed. So that's, that's what I always think about, you know, with recent deaths, particularly unexpected, but really any death, there's overwhelm. And trying to, how do you help people navigate through that? Because again, you, I'm, I mean, I'm sort of picking up that you probably got natural counselling skills, but you're not a trained counsellor, but nonetheless, you're navigating people through really overwhelming, difficult circumstances. So how do you do that? Look, I have done lots and lots of training, not just 
as a celebrant, but I've certainly studied a lot with the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement mm-hmm. and the National Association of Loss and Grief and other types of things that I've been able to do online with people overseas. But I do think a lot of it comes from having an innate sense of care, treading lightly, understanding in some way, what people are going through. So if I look yeah. at my family from yesterday, there's no way known I could understand what they're feeling. I have not lost a 16-year-old in car accident. Yeah. I've not lost a child. But I can certainly go into that, that home yesterday with an understanding of how I facilitate that conversation yesterday. So just to give you an example, the first hour... I totally was just listening to their stories and sharing a conversation and a cup of tea before we got into any, what I'm going to say, work. Yeah. So, you know, the mother of the boy had taken me into his bedroom to show me the space and understand what he what he loved to do, what sort of activities he loved to do, what posters he had up on the wall, even down to, um, you know, selecting his clothes yeah. To go with him. Yeah. And so that first hour, I never think about me being in a work mode. No. You know, I'm, there, I'm there to listen. I don't ask questions about anything I don't need to know. But often families will share experiences with you. Um, however, I will say I am not a counsellor and I don't offer counselling advice. The only, the only time I've come close to that was where I had a family I was working with that I was very, very worried about their daughter. The father had taken his life and the daughter was showing all signs of being at risk of, of suicide herself. Mm. So I definitely got on the phone with the mother's permission right in front of me and we got hold of a grief counsellor straight away to come to the house. Yeah, That's the closest I've ever got to counselling and that was really a referral. Yeah, Yes, it might be an innate skill. But I think also it's knowing how to tread lightly, how to let the family lead that conversation, but to also get to a point where we have to get down to, okay, there's some decisions that we need to start thinking about, not necessarily make today, because one of the the hardest things for families is that I don't want them to feel rushed. Mm. So there is no rush in this process. And that's one thing I can do as an advocate rather than a funeral company coming in and they just want to get things ticked and boxes ticked and things Mm. done. I can come in and say, let's not rush it. If we need to take two days to choose a coffin, so be it. But I want the family to know that I'm going to be led by them but yep. I will be their guide. I had a full list of all the things I needed to ask them and we just went through as, as they could manage it. Yep. And some things we left until today or tomorrow because there's no rush on some things. But it is a process that has to be handled very well. Otherwise, you're going to add to the trauma. Moments are precious. How do you make the most of your time with a loved one during their final days and hours? We can help your friends and family feel nurtured and supported during this difficult time. Visit doulaconnections.com.au. I'm just thinking, because again, I know we haven't got a lot of time left and I'd love to have you back again to to talk about even your books as in, you know, as separate one-off um, interviews, because I think they'd be really interesting. But, you know, if for, for people that are really thinking, I would love a celebrant, but 
how do I know if I've got a good one? What what could people ask? How would they figure out if they're choosing the right person to be there for them? Okay, so I'm I'm actually going to answer this in two ways, and I know that I won't be popular in the way I answer it, but I don't care Great. <laughs> because I'm thinking I'm thinking of the families. All right, so the first thing um, I'm going to say is. I would ask, are they trained as a funeral celebrant? Yes. Not just, not just part of their marriage celebrant course. Are they trained independently by somebody who is a specialist in funeral training? That's the first thing. Yep. And then the second thing I would ask any family to ask is, are they independent from a funeral company? Yeah. Because 90% of funerals work directly with one or two funeral companies and I am definitely going to say to you that is not in the interest of families because they are not independent and the funeral companies are going to prohibit certain things that that celebrant can offer to a family. Wow. Now, that's really good advice because oh, I didn't know that, Sally. I, that's, I just thought people looked up celebrants on the internet or whatever and would never have even occurred to me to ask that, you know, are you independent or have you had funeral training? And they're very basic questions, but people wouldn't even know to ask. So thank you for that, if nothing else. God. Look, it's sad that we have so few independent celebrants, but I believe it's, it is the way of the future mm. because a celebrant should be independent. A celebrant should be able to walk into a family and say, what do you want? Mm. How can we help? And, and it's an absolute blank canvas and not be afraid to go back to the funeral company and say, oh, by, by the way, they want a hearse at the end of the ceremony so they can uh, escort the body out to the hearse and wave the hearse off and then have a funeral company say, I hope you didn't offer that because we don't have a hearse. Mm, wow. So if they're independent, they are less likely to get caught up with what they're being told they can and can't do. Right. Gotcha. So I suppose... My next question is is about the training, you know. So tell me, is it online? Is it face-to-face? Are, are the people that do your training end-of-life doulas? Like, who are they? Yeah, that's a really good question. So over the years, I mean, I've run this training now for 20 years and the course still looks pretty similar. Of course, some things have changed, but we run it over two days and then we also sometimes run a half day where we take the celebrants around a cemetery and a cremation. So um, it's very hands-on. It's basically um, let's talk about grief to start with so that we can understand how grief sort of underpins our whole journey with this family. So we, we get the person to understand their, their own grief situation understanding that sometimes your grief's going to be tapped into. So any bereavement and loss at any stage could be tapped into because of this work we do. So we start yep. with that. And then we, we go into Saturday or the, the first day, the afternoon, we actually go, what happens when the first phone call comes in? So it's very practical. It's step one right through what happens every step of this way now. And then 
The next day, we start with uh, deconstructing a video of a funeral so that we can actually visually see uh, the protocol, some of the things that can go wrong in a funeral. So one of the videos we've got is where the funeral didn't go right at the start and, you know, what would that mean for the celebrant and what would that mean for the family? And then we get into writing. So how do we gather the data from the family? How do we actually write a script and, and how do we do a read back with the family so the family have checked that script. I would never, ever do a funeral without a family checking a script because, mm. once again, more trauma can be had by a celebrant standing up but reading out something that's actually not correct. Wow. I can't um, even imagine we, somebody reading out oh, something that's not correct. Oh, my God. Oh. Can I tell you it happens far too often? Oh, no. And then the last part of the second day is around a bit more about protocol. So final disposition of bodies, what can happen, where they can happen, burials, cremation, um, spreading of ashes. Then we look at how do we look after ourselves? How do we deal with our own emotions uh, when we're meeting with the family? And I often have celebrants say to me, I'm scared of crying. And Mm. I'll say, you know what? I cry at many funerals Mm. and I'm not going to apologise yeah. Because I want the human side of you to come forth. I want the family to see that you're human. However, there's a big difference between having a few tears and being able to step back up and be the person who is the professional and someone who's a blubbering mess. Yeah, and for sure. If, you, if you're the blubbering mess, then you should not be a celebrant. Mm. So, but I think it's important that our emotions are visible, but just controlled. Yeah, And then we look at, you know, how do you market yourself as a celebrant? And, um, and then, of course, there are homework. So there's coursework to do, which basically sets the person up to be ready to be a celebrant once they've done the two days and they've finished the coursework. Yeah. And there'd be differences between the states too that you'd be all over that in the training. Yes, yeah, so there are differences in the state laws because that's, that's where it's a bit different from being a wedding, wedding celebrant. We work mm-hmm. under a federal law. As a funeral celebrant, we work within state jurisdictions and so there's different setups with cemeteries. Um, there's different laws around where bodies can be. There's different laws around how long you can have a body at home after yep. the body the person's died, those sort of things. So we're, we're totally on top of that when we're training that. And our training happens face-to-face and also on Zoom. It's a bit like what we're doing now with the podcast. We would have a maximum of 12 and people come from all around the world to do the training. Wow. We def- definitely have a large number from New Zealand and Australia, but it means sometimes that the timeframes are a little bit uh, interesting within a group. Yeah. But as far as, as far as who trains with us, what I've noticed is we do have a big crossover between doulas and sellers. So if we think of Helen Callanan's Preparing the Way, which is certainly my preferred doula training, Helen and I cross over a lot. Um, We do a lot together, as I do with Natural Grace with Libby Maloney. The three of us constantly in contact with each other and working in this space on a daily basis. So we have a lot of doulas to celebrancy training, a lot of celebrants that do the doula training because, you know, I work a lot with families before a death, getting a person home, facilitating the home and for them to die at home and then Mm -hmm. facilitating 
accommodating them staying at home. So we're training celebrants around that space as well. Really beautiful. All right. Well, I have absolutely loved having you and talking today and meeting because we haven't met. So it's really cool to, to meet you and talk to you. So if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get you? So they can get me through sallykent.com.au or my celebrants training college.com.au and celebranttraining.co.nz. Beautiful. They're they're the three websites that they can get me through, Julie. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. That was great. Thank you, Sally. We hope you found this conversation and information interesting, helpful and empowering with the Death, Dying, Diagnosis and Doulas podcast. Help us empower others by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. 